Good morning. Um, I'm not sure, um, despite Rianne's introduction, that I'm a renowned botanist, um, but it is nice to be looking out at you through a bunch of roses. Um, thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here again. I'm realizing now I'm here that the only disadvantage is that I now have to get up and speak. Um, those of you who know me, and I can see several familiar faces around the room, or those of you who've been on my walks, because I've done two or three walks around your churchyard now, nature walks around your churchyard, those of you who've been on those um, will know that I'm probably more at home grubbing about amongst ants and antirhinums or, or weeds and woodlice than I am standing at what passes for a pulpit at St. Luke's. Um, and those of you who know me or have been on my walks might also have assumed that I chose the passage that we've just heard because it refers to the birds of the air, the grass of the fields, the adornment of the lilies. Um, but in that, you'd be wrong. That passage comes, in fact, from the Sermon on the Mount, which is a very long sermon, longer than the one that I intend to give this morning. Um, it occupies three whole chapters of St. Matthew's Gospel. And it includes passages, really important passages like the Beatitudes or like the first rendition of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and in fact, if you read it, 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 is not, it, it becomes evident that it is not one single sermon, that it's actually a collection of teachings and aphorisms and parables and prayers and puzzles put together in one place. And in the middle of it comes this passage, this passage which says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, don't worry about what you're going to drink, don't worry about what you're going to wear. And why take ye thought for raiment, it says. Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. I repeated that, by the way, because I thought it was an appropriate verse for the end of London Fashion Week. And, and, and a week when Extinction Rebellion had been protesting outside, um, especially about the idea of throwaway fashions. But... It's not those lines that I want to talk about. Actually, it's the last two verses that I want to focus on, beginning with, seek ye first, you heard it, this is the authorised version, you're hearing it now, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It doesn't come there as a suggestion or as a little piece of advice. It comes as an instruction, as an injunction, as an imperative. There are, as Boris might say, no ifs and buts about it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Um, there is a quote about this by Soren Kierkegaard, which has meant a lot to me ever since I came across it um, in, in one of the books by the American Quaker. I'm a Quaker, by the way. I'll just slip that in. By the American Quaker, Richard Foster. And if you don't mind, I'd like to share it with you. It goes like this. Seek ye first... God's kingdom and his righteousness. What does this mean? What have I to do? Or what sort of effort is it that can be said to seek or pursue the kingdom of God? Shall I try to get a job suitable to my talents and powers in order thereby to exert an influence? No. Thou shalt first seek God's kingdom. Shall I then give all my fortune to the poor? No. Thou shalt first seek God's kingdom. Shall I then go to proclaim this teaching to the world? No, thou shalt first seek God's kingdom. But then, in a certain sense, is it nothing I should do? Yes, certainly, 
In a certain sense, it is nothing. Become nothing before God. Learn to keep silent. In this silence is the beginning, which is first to seek God's kingdom. Now, you could take that list that uh, Kierkegaard provides there, and you could extend it. And I've got to be careful, because what I'm going to say now is it sounds like I'm going to contradict everything else you've heard in this service so far. So please, if you're going to heckle me, just save it towards the end of the sermon and, and, then, and do it politely. But, <clears throat> but you can say, shall I then go on the climate change strike? No, seek ye first God's kingdom. Shall I sort out my recycling and my compost bins? No, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Shall I install solar panels on the church roof? No, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Instead of all this, we are advised, in a sense, to do nothing. And it gets worse, because in the last verse, it goes on to say, the authorised version, take no thought for the morrow. Or in the New English Bible, do not be anxious about tomorrow. So here we are, already launched on the sixth great extinction, facing the despoiling, the degradation, the damage of every aspect of our planet, confronting the incalculable impacts of climate change, and I'm reading and speaking about a passage which seems to say, A, do nothing, and B, don't even worry about it. Well, not quite. But this passage is about what precedes action and where it should come from. It's about the wellspring of action and what our lives should focus on first. And it's also, I would suggest, about what will sustain us in the difficulties that lie ahead when we are possibly facing despair and depression. It is what will keep us going. Sometimes, and again, this is where I have to be careful, sometimes I think the churches as a whole have got it wrong on climate change. Some, we have come late to the party, as we so often do, and we, are, and we are rushing to catch up with the world, or at least with that more enlightened part of the world. So we're focusing on greening our buildings, we're focusing on replacing our plastic cups, uh, on making sure we serve fair trade tea, and all these things are good and right. But these are outcomes not the initiation. These all come under the category of all this shall be added unto you. Because before and beyond that, the churches and the faith groups have a distinctive voice which we need to rediscover. It's a voice which says we need a change of heart and we need a change of mind. It's a voice which says that there is an alternative way of life to unbridled consumerism and unchecked capitalism that there is a different route to happiness and fulfilment, one which serves social and environmental justice, that there can be, as the Green Christian Movement puts it, joy in enough. And this is what we should be proclaiming, and it's all in this passage. These few verses from the Gospel of Matthew are a dangerously radical manifesto, and it is no surprise that the man who preached them had to be put to death. So, what is this kingdom of God that we should be seeking? Well, I am no theologian. <laughs> Thank God you're probably saying in response to that. I am no theologian. But in my experience, in my view, the kingdom of God is something that is here, now, and all around us. It can be glimpsed in relationship and community. It can be seen in other people. It can be heard in silence and sometimes in noise. It can be 
experienced in the natural world of which we're a part. If you've been on my walks, one of the things I often talk about is something called the doctrine of signatures. The doctrine of signatures is one of the old schools of herbalism which taught that God gave everything a sign, a a symbol, an aspect which showed how it should be used. So things with uh, yellow juice, for example, would be used to treat jaundice. Things with thick, fleshy leaves, like the lungwort, would be used to treat lung complaints. Things which grew in stony places would be used to treat gallstones. Now, I'm not telling you about this for medical reasons today. I'm not recommending that you go home and try this. But I just love that idea that everything, all creation, bears the signature of God. In fact, that sort of idea, that the kingdom of God is manifest in everything around us, is a very strong part of the English spiritual tradition. Um, I know you have a Celtic service here once a month. I just want to say we don't always need to turn to the Celts to find that idea expressed. It's part of the English uh, spiritual tradition as well. Dig where you stand. It's there, for example, in Anglo-Saxon poetry. It's there in the illustrations of medieval manuscripts. It's there in Julian of Norwich talking about the whole universe as a hazelnut held in her hand. It's there in the wonderful visions of Thomas Traherne. Um, It's there in the poetry of of William Blake, of of the Anglican Coleridge, of the Catholic uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, And it's there in the tradition of the Parson Naturalists. Now, you may not have heard of the Parson Naturalists, but as the husband of a priest, it is something which is very dear to my heart. The Parson Naturalists, it, it was a movement which lasted for over 200 years, and these were people who combined their clerical roles, their religious duties, with a study, a detailed observation and a study of nature. They saw, despite all the controversies of the time, they saw no contradiction between their faith and science. And they made these enormous contributions in in botany, in zoology, in um, meteorology, in uh, taxonomy, in all sorts of fields. They were, in fact the founders of the science of ecology, which is so important today. The best known of them is is Gilbert White, but the most important of them was a man called John Ray, who was born in 1627. And he believed that the study of the natural world was a natural expression of his faith. He called it natural theology, and he expounded in a book he wrote called The Wisdom of God Manifested in the Works of Nature. And here is one short quote from that book, The contemplation of God's creation should be part of everyone's duty on the Sabbath day. I'd just like to endorse that view, but pointing out that that's as well as coming to St. Luke's, not instead of of coming here. Um, But what if we were? What if we were to be seeking the kingdom of God in the world around us? And what if we were to be undertaking that contemplation of God's creation, whether it was in the highlands of Scotland or in the streets of Upper Holloway? We would find, I think, that all creation, animate and inanimate, is engaged in the act of praising God. The buddhiers I saw in bloom on the railway track as I came here this morning, praising God. The, 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 the leaves on the plane tree falling on the streets outside, or the berries on the rowan out there, praising God. The, half, the transparent half moon that was hanging in the sky almost all day yesterday, praising God. It is not the scientific explanation, but it is another perspective. 
It's not just my idea. It's a theme that runs through the Hebrew scriptures. It's there in Genesis and in Job. It's there in Isaiah, where the mountains and the hills shall burst into song, and the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. And it's there, as you've heard, it's there most of all, and repeatedly in the Psalms. All the heaven, sorry, all the earth worships you and sings praises to you. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Not all of nature is nice or pretty or kind, but in its completeness, in its connectedness, in its complexity, in the ongoing business of creation, it is praising God. Think, think just of the sheer fecundity of it. You know, breathe in, and you have breathed in a million, million atoms of oxygen. Take one spoonful of soil from your garden, or from your window box if you haven't got a garden. In that spoonful, the bacteria in that spoonful will outnumber the human population of the planet. Praise him, all you bacteria. Praise him, the magpie that woke me up at six o'clock this morning. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and frost, stormy winds fulfilling his command, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and cedars, wild animals and all cattle, creeping things and flying birds. Let them praise the name of the Lord. And if we are not joining in that chorus, we are setting ourselves against it. So this is how I believe we need to equip ourselves to confront the enormous environmental challenge that lies ahead and the daunting task that we have to tackle. Approaching it, not from guilt, even though a certain amount of guilt might be appropriate. Approaching it not from fear, even though fear is not unreasonable. Approaching it not from a desire for change, even though change is essential but because we are seeking first the kingdom of God. We are experiencing it daily in the world around us, and we are joining in that great chorus of praise and celebration. And if we can get that right, then everything else will be added unto us. Thank you.